On this episode of The Playbook, I have Zach Weiner, the co-founder and CEO of Overtime. The two of us are going to discuss what it is like building the next generation of sports content for social media. Join me for all of this and more on The Playbook. This is The Playbook, where I give you access each week to the world's greatest athletes and executives about their personal and professional playbook and what has made them champions on and off the field. This is The Playbook. I have a superstar in the house, Zach Weiner, the co-founder and president of Overtime. Huge fan of your company, but really want to, Zach, get into, number one, thanking you for being here. But talk about, I mean, you're so young, so successful. A lot of entrepreneurs kind of set their bars a little too high. And I wanted to get your perspective when you were just starting out, where you set your bar for the consistent behavior that has made you the success you are so far. Yeah, I think it's an excellent question because... You know, I have a lot of friends that want to start companies or people come to me all the time. I, I You're a new superhero, man. Let's be honest. <laughs> I used to represent athletes. Now, I got Gary Vee on my wall instead of uh, Dan Fouts. Yeah, I don't know if I'm a superstar yet, but, but I'm working to try to get there. Um, but I think that actually the number one sort of piece of advice that I give and the problem that I see is that people are trying to shoot for the moon on the first day of their idea. And I think that having an action plan just to get started on day one and day two and day three is, is super important. Um, I think it's fine if at the beginning you do things that don't scale. Like you just have to try things out. Uh, an example of that is I had a friend that, that came to me, had this idea, she's not working on it anymore, but she had an idea to essentially create open table for salons. She was like, okay, may, maybe there can be a reservation system across and it notifies you in different salons of opportunities. And I said, and she was like, how many developers do I need and all this? And I said, you know what? Just go to a couple different salons and say, hey, I'm going to get your availability every single day and I'm going to email it out to 10 of my friends. And every single day, I'm going to manually email it out for 60 days. And let's see if even one friend uses that service. It, it, obviously, that's not scalable. You can't build a company by sending out that email every single day. But it's a way to test to see if there's actually a market opportunity before you go raise millions of dollars. It's funny, Zach, that you say that because I believe in the triple A strategy. When I got out of law school, I made a lot of money, but I was like a bull in a china shop, right? I just believed in action. Uh I believe in alignment first, which is what you're discussing, then take action, but prepare for adjustment. Yes. When you came up with the idea for overtime, what was that idea and how long ago was it? Yeah, so it was a little bit over three years ago. Um, and so I, I had a different startup when I was in college called the Sports Quotient. And basically what that was, it was sort of democratizing the process of college kids to be able to write about sports, do podcasts, create video. And it was a really fun business. We grew it to over 200 contributors all across the country, 80 plus <coughs> universities. But I think the issue with that company as a business was that it sort of solved the supply side. Like there were all these kids that wanted to contribute, but there wasn't really demand. Like I couldn't go to you, David. Watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and, and I couldn't go to you, David, and say, hey, you should read this article because it's written by a college kid. You're like, well, I just want to read the best article possible. And there's a million sites where I can read articles. So when we started Overtime, it was sort of the inverse. It was like, let's focus on the market opportunity rather than what we're going to fill that market with at the very, very beginning. And so the market opportunity for us was the next generation consumer uh, in sports. And it was very clear to us the data was saying that kids are watching less live sports. They were not infatuated with the brands that you know older people grew up um, appreciating in the sports media landscape. So we started with that. And then we said, okay, let's test and iterate how to, how to get into the hearts and minds of young people. Um, and one of the things that we landed on was this idea of the next generation athlete. When Zion Williamson was in high school, 
He had a million Instagram followers, and yet mainstream media was ignoring him. And I would say probably over 90% of those followers were in Gen Z, the exact demo that we cared about. So we knew long-term we would cover NBA players, NFL players, professional soccer players, et cetera. But we, we thought that if we started doing that from day one, we wouldn't be unique enough. So we needed to do something that would endear us to this audience. And the first thing we did was cover their peers. Well, it's interesting because there's two key lessons that I'm hearing you talk about. One is we don't know what we don't know, right? There's so many young people that have dropped out of college, high school, are in college or just graduated. And for me being a 35-year entrepreneur, someone who has lost over $100 million, <laughs> regained it, all the things that I went through. Sounds the like supply- my gambling last night. Right, exactly. <laughs> We're here in Vegas at CES. But the supply and demand side is something that I'd analyze immediately. Yes. But yet I have thousands of entrepreneurs asking me for advice and I asked them, uh, have you thought about this as a business instead of a great idea and kind of go historically through that. Secondly, in that evolution, one of the key things that I want to discuss with you is that there's no more broadcast, Mm -hmm. right? So more people that I know know Bob Minnery instead of Sage Steele, Mm -hmm. right? Where everybody would know Sage Steele, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago nobody, right, they all know Bob Minery because he speaks to a specific audience with a specific issue or entertaining issues, whatever he does. Overtime does very much the same as it grows. It starts very narrow at a spectrum because we have so much access at such a low cost, Mm -hmm. 4.2 billion people and growing. You speak to millions of people that create a successful business, even though there are far more people, which I joke around with my brand growing, people like, I am so sorry, man, I've never heard of you. And I'm thinking, well, there's 4.2 billion people on the internet. I'm happy that you have it because you're in the majority. You're in billions, right? Point one one zero zero one percent of the people know me. I'm very successful. Uh-huh. Same's true with overtime. Yeah. So how do you stay true to what you have a strong signal, but that spectrum part where you stay true to when do we go and leave these unknown stars that Gen Z is definitely interested in and start expanding out to you know LeBron James? Yeah, I think I think we we are past that point, luckily, and I think that we reached that point when I could walk down the street in an overtime shirt and a kid would say, oh, shout out to overtime, I love overtime. Because then, now let's say we, 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 did a, we did a video series with Kevin Durant. It's not just, oh, that's a video series of Kevin Durant to the consumer, that's Kevin Durant on overtime. They, they are associating our brand with it. And I think that in, in the media world today, I think a lot, that's why a lot of media companies are struggling. You see a piece of media on social media, on YouTube, and you're just watching that content. You're not caring where it comes from. And that was very important for us to make sure that our audience cared where it came from. Right, which is why you're on the playbook, the entrepreneurs, the playbook. That's where overtime is. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) One of the other things that you're really successful at that I don't see a lot of young people understanding is raising money, Mm -hmm. right? You've been able to successfully raise money. And there's a rule I have about business. You don't have a business unless you can stay in business. And there's one consistent component of staying in business that's having enough money to pay your bills and hopefully yourself, um, which a lot of people don't consider either. Can you give us some tricks of the trade as someone who's younger on you know, how to prepare, number one, to raise mm-hmm. money, two, when to raise money, and then three, some advice on how to do it? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that I didn't know going into the process and that I've since learned by talking to our current investors is uh, you hear it sometimes, but I can validate that it's actually true. A lot of investors are investing in people. Um, and, and 
I, I, I just heard about, I, I was talking to one of our investors that invested in a company that's worth billions of dollars, and he said the number one reason why people invest in that company was because of the person. And so I think that, honestly, that should be a sign of encouragement because who you are as a person is actually something that you can control. And um, I think, it's, for me, I try to be a good person to everyone that I meet. I try to be very likable. Um, and I think that, honestly, that part goes a long way because they are investing in that founding team. And for us in particular, you know, Dan is double my age. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's built and sold a bunch of startups. I'm younger. I'm more in the demo that we're facing, but I had had a different startup before. Um, so we sort of had this unique pairing. And I think more than anything else, that was actually the foundation uh, of the company. So I would say make sure that you're presenting yourself as someone that people want to invest in. I would say the other thing is to your point about monetization, there needs to be a moment where that potential investor gets like what I would call greedy eyes. Because it, it, <laughs> I love that. Because, because you know, they have to like you as a person, but they also have to think, wow, if I don't write you a check right now, there's a chance I'm missing out on a lot of money. Because anyone that is investing is trying to make money, whether it's for themselves or a fund, they have to believe that there is a pot of gold at the end. So I think that, that, you, that you can't ignore that. And then the third is you just, you just have to show a lot of passion around your idea and show that you're the right fit. Because you could be a great person, there could be a great market, market opportunity, but you could be the wrong person to execute on that. And so you have to prove that you're the right person for that opportunity. Yeah, and what I hear you saying too is that you know people bow in motion for logical reasons. Totally, and I love that term, greedy eyes. So if you see it on my Instagram or other places, go, hey, Dave Meltzer took that right off the playbook. Um, I love it. You can have it. The when the when question is always one that I get a lot of people want to know, Dave. When should I raise money? Do you have a certain strategy, philosophy, or advice that you can give on when exactly is the right time to raise money? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of people think that fundraising is a very very formal process. Um, you know, I can't speak to, you know, raising an E round or something like that, but I would say in, in, you know, we've raised a seed an A and a B and every single time it's been about building relationships along the way. So it's not necessarily that you have this one meeting and that's where you, you know, and they know that the decision is going to be made at that point. It's really more, you're building the relationship, you're telling them the story, and then eventually you have a need and they're like, okay, now is the right time. So I would say when you're raising your seed round or your angel round, I, I think the best tactic is to reach out to people that you respect that might be able to write a check and not ask them for a check. Ask them for advice. Ask them for other people you could talk to. What do they think of your idea? Um, and it's sort of like this sort of psychological trick um, that gets them thinking, oh, maybe I want to invest. Maybe this should be me. And it, you're also information gathering at the same time. Yeah, it's really interesting because what I've seen you do as you have funded successfully over time through those three rounds is use a series of questions to figure out what value you could provide to the people that sit in a situation that either you want to be in or you could utilize or you want them to be with you. But through that series of questions and providing value, you then kind of slip that whole, hey, do you know anyone that can help me? Yeah. I'm looking, right? Or, yeah, yeah. or it seems the new nuance that I didn't know about you is you use this emotional attachment afterwards to say, oh, greedy eyes. And the guy's like, well, how can I get in, right? Yes. And, and that's when you know you're really And, and I would money. say the other piece that's critical too is that you, you can't be too selfish. Like you have to legitimately try to help other people. So all of our investors, if I hear about a good company, I'm sending it to them. I'm sending it to one that I think is the best fit. I, I, you know, if, if their kid is interested in an internship, I'm making sure that they get a, a good look. Um, any way that I can help people, I'm always willing to do that because 
you know, I think it's intrinsic to me, but it's also good business. Yeah, it's like one of the difficulties that younger entrepreneurs have too, which I had when I was young, is attaching my emotions to an outcome. So it was like, I'll be happy when I close my seed. I'll be happy when I close my A. I'll be happy when I close my B. And each time that I got more successful, yeah, it was bigger and more risk and more stress. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there are, and there becomes a point, two points. One, where your business becomes so successful, it may outgrow you. Right, I've been in that situation mm-hmm. where I used to tell people I semi-retired as I was CEO of the first cell, the first Samsung uh, convergence device, which we now call smartphones. Uh-huh. I, for years, I tell people, yeah, I semi-retired. No, they fired me and paid me because the company outgrew me. Yeah, right. I just didn't have the ability. Yeah. But there also becomes a time where it takes different knowledge. You're still a part of it, but your specific. You know, you know you the Generation Z. You know how to market to them. So, but there's some skill sets that you're going to have to hire for. Of course. How do you deal with the anxiety? Because you know, going back years for me, that just killed me all the time. Because I, the more successful I was, the bigger my ego was, the bigger my reputation was. The more my friends were like, "I want to be just like Dave. I want to be just like Zach." And then you're sitting in the reality, going. This thing could close tomorrow. Like people don't understand what it's like to have all these employees in overhead. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's. I would say we have 120 employees, and that's both daunting uh, and empowering. Like when I do go into a meeting to fundraise, I'm thinking about that 120 people, and in that moment, I'm not thinking about how like there's risk here that they could be unemployed if we don't raise money. I'm thinking about wow, I have an army behind me of people that love overtime are going to do everything that they can. We're going to win, and I think that that confidence comes across and and it's a really important thing. But to your point about giving up power, um, you know, I I don't envision myself, you know, giving up my my leadership role in the company anytime soon. But what I will say is we've had to bring on, you know, veterans in the industry, whether it's in content or sales or tech. And um, it's, it was hard in the beginning, for sure. I I remember vividly, we we, we hired a, you know, uh, an executive and in the beginning, the executive, quite honestly, was a little frustrated because I still wanted my imprint on every single decision. And he said to me, like, I respect your opinion. I want to work with you. But if you're not going to let me make any decisions, why, why, why did you hire me? And, and I think it was a good point. And it, I think since then, I've struck a much better balance of saying, OK, this is your domain. There's so, there's some cases where I, I may interfere and let's create sort of a system so that I can have my imprint. But ultimately, I, ne- I need to let you run your part of the business or we're not going to be able to scale. One of the other challenges that I faced as a young entrepreneur being successful and now as a business coach, right? I executive coach so many different entrepreneurs, startups to Fortune 500 companies. But my chief concern in raising money is, would you be okay if you didn't own any of the company in the end to save all, to to grow the company? And because, I mean, you, you have really good investment in it, but a lot of people start off in the wrong structure. They start mm-hmm. off with giving too much away. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of abundant people that just have a passion for the business to succeed. Yeah. Are you someone that keeps in the back of your mind? Because there's a balance between scarcity and abundance. Yeah. Hey, if, if I do this, the company will triple in size. But if I also do this right now, I may not own any of the company in 10 years. Yeah. I, I mean, ultimately, I, I think about it basically on a financial basis. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's for me, but it's also the financial duty to the investors. So, you know, let's say we're going to take 30% dilution. Well, do I think um, the value, you know, the value that we're going to be able to add is going to be worth that dilution, not just for my shares, but for every single investor. So any ta- anytime we take investment or even think about investment, we're, we're making that calculation in our head. 
It's interesting because I learned one line, right? Shareholder value. They used to ask me, what's your exit strategy? And they had me memorize. I'm here to increase shareholder value. <laughs> and my shareholder value kept going down and down and down. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. Well, maybe I'm not so interested in shareholder value. I've got to save the ship. I think maybe that's why they let me go. Um, <laughs> that's okay, though, because it's a learning curve, as you know. Um, yes. Through the advice um, one of the issues that keeps rising up too is education. Mm -hmm. I believe because of the acceleration in growth and technology that education is taking, like other major institutions that we have here in the United States from financial to political, but education especially is taking on a whole new form. Mm -hmm. You're extremely educated, went to great schools. Uh, you know, my, my mom believed the fetus wasn't fully developed until after graduate school. But my the mom believed the same thing. Yeah, and, but it's, but there's an expense component now. There's also the reality of whether education will be conforming or aligned with being successful mm -hmm. in a business. I would love for you to share your perspective of an 18-year-old who maybe has a good idea, some seed funding, and says to you, hey, you know, I got into this Ivy League school. You know, should I go? But I'm going to have to borrow money to go. What advice do you give the kids today? Because I think Number one question for a young entrepreneur is whether college is worth it or not. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because there, there's no blanket answer. So I certainly don't mm -hmm. want to say like always go to college or always don't. Um, I, I think that the, the, the main takeaway for me uh, throughout, throughout my, I mean, I, I did go to Penn. I spent four years there. I was able to run my first business while I was there. I met. That's the Tulane of the North, by the way, <laughs> University of Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, I met I met extraordinary people when I was there. Um, I personally don't think that I would be in the position that I am today if I hadn't gone to Penn. That doesn't mean it's the right decision for everyone. But for me, it was critical that I was able to learn about the things that I was passionate about also outside of school. Um, when, when I talk to people that clearly have just gone in and figured out information and educated themselves on a topic, I think that's inspiring. And it's unique because what you learn in school is valuable, but it's not unique. You're sitting in a class with sometimes 300 other people. So in order to be an entrepreneur, by definition, you have to differentiate. So, you know, even if you do go to college, you know, a college degree is not going to make you an entrepreneur. You need to go out and learn things on your own, too. I love that. I've never heard that distinction with education not being unique. And I think that's true with situational knowledge and experience as well, yes. that people should look for people that sit in the situation that they want to be in and unique opportunities that will give them the skills, the knowledge and desire. Last question real quick, as you just killed it, by the way. Thank you. Someone like you, I'd really like to know, what's your favorite motivational quote? Hmm. That's a good one. Uh, so it's actually in Spanish. And I don't really speak Spanish, so I'm going to butcher it. That's good. Um, but basically, it's this, this quote that says, Walker, there is no path. Uh, you make the path by walking. Hmm. Uh, and actually, Dan, my co-founder, shared that with me. And, and I think it's great because you know, we, we, we talk to partners, investors all the time, and they're, like, and they're saying, so are, are you, what's your path? Like, what, what other company are you going to look like? Um, and they want to compost every other company. And that's sort of our response. Like, we, we are making our own path. We're not following anyone else's. That's awesome. My favorite quote applies to you, which is be kind to your future self and do good deeds. And that's exactly how you built your company and your personal brand and Overtime's brand, which I certainly appreciate. You've been an extraordinary guest here. 